In today's episode, we arrive at Exodus chapter 4. God has given Moses a seemingly impossible task. Stand up to Pharaoh, the god king of the Egyptians, and demand he free the nearly 3 million Hebrew slaves. Moses is understandably concerned. He's convinced that no one will listen to him, neither his own people nor Pharaoh. He asks for someone else to be chosen, yet God's ways are not our ways, and he sends Moses back into Egypt armed with signs and wonders. Good morning. Today is Friday, November 11th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We give thanks to God for our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their amazing translation and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, to aid in our discussion of Exodus chapter 4, please join me in welcoming returning guest, the Reverend Jason Bredesen, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Sacramento, California. Pastor Bredesen, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. It's always great to be with you and God's people here on KFUO. Excellent. Well, we're happy to have you here. How's life and ministry been for you since we last talked? It's been great. Uh, busy. Uh, last time we talked, I was in Monterey, California at the Defense Language Institute uh, with my service as an Air Force Reserve chaplain. And I'm back in at uh, Trinity and back with my family and back here in Sacramento. So been playing catch up for the last uh, five weeks or so, getting back in the saddle and settled in. So it's uh, it's good. It's fall. We're headed Excellent. to Advent and Christmas. Well, I was uh, talking with the board operator off the air about weather. What's the weather like in California right now? We are unseasonably cool. Uh, we had a an overnight low in the high 30s. Uh, today will be, I think, in the low 60s for the high. <laughs> so it's a uh, it's chilly for us here in California. How are you doing out there in Minnesota? Well, we're doing just great. Uh, we have a, a high of 22 today, a low of 15, but I think it's a balmy 19 right now, and we have some snowflakes. But, you know, you I, as I told him, you know, cold is cold no matter where you are. So if you're getting in the 30s in California, that's going to be chilly. Uh, 60, however, it's hard for me to... Uh, it's hard for me to feel bad about that. <laughs> you, I'm but, not going to uh, get down there in Missouri, it's you. starting to get cool too. Yeah, I might have to change out of my shorts today and put on some <laughs> uh, some pants. Well, and it's also about how the weather switches so quickly. I think that was sort of the the subject of what we were talking about. You know, sometimes you know it'll be seventy one day and then forty the next, and that's a pretty big drop. Yes, that's for sure. Well, we have chapter four, which is a great one in Exodus. You know, Moses has been given this task by God to go and and approach Pharaoh, and he's understandably nervous. Uh, before we dig into that text, would you start us off with some prayer? We pray. Holy and gracious Father, thank you so much for bringing us together today around your word. Bless and keep us according to your promise, especially as we dig into Exodus 4. Thank you for Pastor Boo and for all those who have tuned in and who will download the program later. May we all be um, blessed and comforted and uh, given the hope of your word, the comfort that the Holy Spirit brings to us in that, that we may ever be strengthened for service in your kingdom through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
Well, there is nothing left to do but to do it, and so we're going to read our text, and I'm going to read it in about four chunks. Uh, The first part is the first half of uh, Moses responding to God's call that he must go to, well, not only his people and tell them that he's there on behalf of Yahweh to free them, but of course to the big man himself, to Pharaoh, to tell him to let God's people go. So I'm going to read verses 1 through verse, let's say, 9, and this will be from the ESV, chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. All right, that's our text so far. So God's going to give Moses some important signs, uh, but there's more to it than just these. Uh, these aren't parlor tricks. These are the the power of Yahweh being put into the hands of Moses for a purpose. Uh, Pastor, you know, start us off. Take us into this. Yeah. So uh, what you have going on here is a carryover from your lesson yesterday in Exodus chapter three, where Moses uh, receives. The revelation of Yahweh, the covenant name of God, in the midst of the burning bush, which does not get consumed. And uh, Yahweh shows up and and very clearly uh, proclaims when asked if uh, who should be spoken of. Uh, Yahweh says, tell him I am sent you. And we're right to hear the words of Jesus in the great I am statements of the gospel of John there as well. But yeah, um, Moses is still on holy ground. He's still without his sandals and uh, is receiving this revelation of the holy God of Israel, the holy God of all creation. And um, he's he's forced to deal with some pretty significant things. As uh, as we look at chapter four, the, the, we get into a third objection. You know, the first being that, uh, you know, no one's going to listen to me. And then second is, who do I tell the people that sent me name? And then we get into chapter four with the third objection. Eh, they're not going to listen to my voice. They, they really aren't going to hear me. Now, perhaps what Moses is remembering from Exodus chapter two is when uh, when he flees Egypt, it's on account of a confrontation that he had with um, with one who killed an Israelite, and then the next day he goes back, 
and there are a couple of Israelites fighting and uh, Moses steps in between them and says, hey, guys, come on, knock it off, play nice. And they confront Moses and say, hey, who are you? Are you our prince or judge who made you a prince or judge over us? So that might be at the back of Moses's mind here where he is um, reflecting to Yahweh. Yeah, they're, they're not going to listen to me. The problem with that is that Yahweh had just told him in chapter 3, verse 18, they're going to they're gonna hear your voice. They're going to listen to your word. And here Moses is saying, yeah, they're, they're really not going to listen to me. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think that as we look at Moses' reaction here, you know, he's not, as you pointed out, he has some good reasons to think that they won't listen. And he also has some uh, better reasons why he should just trust in the Lord. But he's not completely unreasonable because on the one hand, uh, they kind of don't listen to him. So he ends up needing the things that God gives him, these signs, when he goes to them because uh, God knows he doesn't necessarily scold him for for asking or, or for recognizing that they won't believe him because even in chapter 3, as the Lord tells him to go and approach the, the king of Egypt, he says in 319, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. So mm-hmm. Moses, this whole time, as we move forward and he's continually approaching the, the throne and he's asking or demanding that he let God's people go, he already knows in the back of his head because Yahweh told him so that the king's heart is going to be hardened. You know, because God, just his existence is offensive to Pharaoh. God himself ends up hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his own heart, of course. It's kind of the same thing, really. And and he's not going to listen. But then you add that to what you just pointed out. Mo, why is Moses out here in the middle of nowhere to begin with? Well, because he killed a guy. He mm-hmm. killed an Egyptian. They knew about it. The word spread. He's a fugitive. So there are people in Egypt who are probably looking for Moses, waiting for him to come back so that they might take his life or at least exact some punishment. So when Moses says, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, they're going to say, the Lord did not appear to you. I think it's important that we note that God doesn't say, oh, that's foolish. Of course, they'll listen to you. No, he gives him these signs. And these signs are interesting in and of themselves, right? You know, he has that staff because he's a shepherd, but then the staff becomes a serpent. That's obviously got to mean something more than just a, a serpent coming from a staff because they're both sort of straight and stick-like. The serpent has some deeper meaning, doesn't it, brother? Well, yeah. Uh, we look back to the garden in Genesis, and obviously it is a very evil sign for the people of Israel, for all people, really. And yet the Egyptians viewed the um, the serpent as something that was a source of wisdom or healing, and so they highly valued the serpent. While the um, the Israelites really were fearful of it and concerned about it, saw it as a source of evil, rightly so, with their knowledge of uh, everything that happened in the garden and the fall into sin. So yeah, there is great significance in the use of the staff. And uh, the 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 making of the staff into a serpent, the grabbing of the tail of the serpent, and it returning to a staff. 
Uh, and the reason for that in verse 5 is that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of our fathers, has appeared to you. And, and that's not just for Israel. Uh, Israel recognizing that Moses is a son of God who has been called upon by God to serve in this great capacity, but also for Pharaoh and his armies to recognize that they're not just dealing with some guy here. They are facing the servant of Yahweh. One thing people should remember is that we talk about gods and we talk about, of course, the one true God. And in the scriptures, you know, it says Lord because of the whole, you know, tetragrammaton and, you know, we have uh, the, the vowels being put in from Adonai and we get Yahweh. So the point is uh, he, a Pharaoh doesn't have a problem pe- believing in Yahweh. Sometimes people look at this and they say, okay, this is like approaching an unbeliever and trying to convince them that the one true God exists. In Pharaoh's mind, there are many, many, many gods, and then Yahweh is just the God of the Hebrews. And because the God's uh, power and might was often connected to the power and might of the people who worshipped him, from Pharaoh's point of view, this Yahweh guy – I mean he doesn't know him as Yahweh, but the God of the Hebrews – certainly must be a pretty weak, pathetic God. Why? Well, because his people are (laughs) enslaved. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, they're stuck. Yeah, so what kind of God is that? So from Pharaoh's point of view, and I think even from Yahweh, dealing with the person where they're at, we see even as the plagues come, we all know plagues are coming, and as the plagues come, just as you pointed out here, the sacredness of the snake to the Egyptians— All of the plagues end up dealing with something that the Egyptians find sacred. They all can be connected to a god or gods of the Egyptians. And so Yahweh, the one true God, is continuously getting glory over the gods of the Egyptians. And so it's a slow process that really begins here of Yahweh demonstrating that, at least from the Pharaoh's point of view, that he is the most powerful god. Now, of course, we know from a true perspective that he's the only God, but, you know, baby steps, baby steps. And so we have this <laughs> serpent, which we connect back to Genesis chapter 3. We think of the, the serpent being an enmity with the woman. Um, and then we also see, you know, here's Moses, and he's been a shepherd for something like 40 years. He's, he's 80 years old at this point, and he, he's been a shepherd, and um, he is uh, – um, he, he's used to the shepherd life and the shepherd's staff and the shepherd protects him. And now he's throwing down that shepherd's life going into Egypt. And because of that, he's going to be threatened. His life's going to be threatened. Um, and this is also, I think, a little bit of a, a, a display from Yahweh that because Yahweh's with him, because he has the power of Yahweh with him, he'll be able to pick that serpent up, that thing which threatens him, and Yahweh will always be in control. And the same goes with the next few too. Yeah, when when a leprous hand is stuck back in the cloak and uh, brought out again as healed, that's pretty significant. And then that third miraculous sign in verses eight and nine, you know, if if the first two don't convince the people of Israel or convince Pharaoh, well, you know, the the water of the Nile is going to turn to blood on dry ground. And that's pretty significant. It foreshadows that first plague in Exodus 7, where Moses will take the rod 
the staff and strike the Nile while Pharaoh is bathing in it and it will turn to blood and it will, the you know, the Nile being that source of life for all of Egypt, all living things in the Nile, because it has turned to blood, will die. So right away, the first plague is making very clear to Pharaoh, hey, you're not messing with any old deity here, but the God of all creation. Yeah, and and back to the idea of the gods of Egypt, you know, the Nile is extremely sacred, uh, connected to Osiris and a couple of other gods, probably second only to Ra, the sun god. The Nile is considered the source of life for that region. And so when you are able to mess with the Nile, you're really starting off strong in terms of demonstrating that this Yahweh guy, this Yahweh God, he certainly has power over even some of our most significant gods, has power over creation. So it begins with the Nile, which is the sign of life. And of course, the 10th plague, as most people will know, is death, the, the plague of death. But yeah, so he he is concerned, but what you said earlier, I also want to make sure we illuminate, and that is he has no reason to be concerned. He's getting ready to give another excuse, which we're going to bring in here in a second, but the excuse is even here now. He's seen a burning bush. He's heard from God. He's yeah. seen these miracles, and then he still has more excuses in the next verses. <laughs> Uh, anything else you want to bring out before I add in his next concern? No, I I think uh, you know you your summary there is spot on in terms of Moses ha- really has no reason to question the just the very presence on holy ground with the burning bush. If you witness that, it it, it should really be convincing in and of itself, let alone the other miraculous signs. And yet Moses still kind of pushes back and says, yeah, you know, let's look at options here. Isn't that the story, though, of Israel and, of course, our story, too? It, no matter <laughs> I was just going to say, signs, Pastor Boo, yeah, that's go ahead. me. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's my story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we experience God in the ways that he shows himself to us, which are miraculous. And yet we continue to fall back into sin. We continue to struggle with doubt and disbelief. And he's done all that's necessary. So the the, the deficit belongs with us, uh, just as the deficit here belongs with Moses. Well, he's not done trying to get out of this task, even though he's been giving these amazing miracles. So let's read verses 10 through 17 and hear what else Moses has up his sleeve. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. 
and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Wow, Moses, you know, even these amazing miracles aren't enough. But yeah, but you know, I'm not very eloquent, he tells God. What, what do you think? I can't talk too good. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he kind of lays it out there. Um, I, I, Yahweh, I just can't talk too good. And, uh, I, you know, it has yet to take place in the history of Israel. But Balaam's donkey in number 20, numbers 22, where the you know, the donkey is uh, to uh, being pushed through the gateway, the archway, and the angel of the Lord is standing on the other side with the flaming sword, and Balaam starts beating his donkey, saying, "Move, get on with it. Uh, let's get going here." And uh, the donkey turns around and says, "Why are you beating me? I've I've been a good donkey for you, and I'm trying to save your hide here." And uh, you know, I, I've always thought, thankfully, God can speak through Balaam's donkey because uh, right. uh, that encourages me that he can speak through me as well. <laughs> Yahweh really does have a handle on things. I love that you uh, referenced Isaiah 55 in the, the opening segment of the show. I was actually going to bring it up as well. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's Yahweh's word. We ought to trust Yahweh for the outcome. We, uh, the, 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 the Lord of all has our back. And uh, as you reflected at the outset of the show, his ways are not our ways, nor our ways as high as his ways. And uh, why can't we simply rest in that confidence that it's the Lord's word and he is the one it, that is at work in it? Uh, thanks be to God. So you can't talk too good. Uh, go ahead and right. speak anyway. And what I also find, well, beautiful and comforting about these passages is, again, Moses. And is he trying to, like, get out of it because he's afraid? Well, we're not, at least not that I'm aware of, given much insight into Moses's intentions or inner dialogue. But based on what he says— we could give Moses the benefit of the doubt and say that he genuinely thinks that he's just not the best equipped. But mm -hmm. even then, even then, it's like we can carry humility too far. <laughs> if God calls you to do something, uh, then, as you said, trust that he has a process, that his ways are not our ways. He, It's fine. He picked you for a reason. Now, if God calls you and he literally calls you through a burning bush in the pro in production of miracles and speaking from heaven, then take the hint, right? right. So yeah. there's a time to set modesty and fears aside and just do what God says. But yeah. God gets mad. I mean, his anger is kindled against him, and instead of smiting him on the spot, which is the way some people depict God, he says, I'm very angry with you. Okay, fine. Here's what you need to keep obedience. He 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 recognizes the the sin in Moses, not trusting in the Lord, mm -hmm. and yeah. then provides for him a way so that he can trust. And that's the grace of God.
Yes, absolutely it is. You know, looking at why the the anger of the Lord is kindled here, I, you know, Moses is given some pretty pretty worthwhile excuses thus far, but in verse 13, he really steps away from all of those excuses and and just kind of flat out says it. I look, I don't want to go. I've got a good life here in Midian. I'm I'm hanging out with the in-laws. My wife is happy. Yahweh, you're kind of cramping my style here. Uh, <laughs> this is this is pretty big sacrifice you're asking me to make here. I'm not, I, I, surely there's someone else that you can send to do this job, and that is what um, finally kindles the anger of the Lord. Uh, my work in the Air Force, we have a saying that goes when you're talking to someone more senior than you, more senior in command, and they're they're giving you a an order that is not illegal nor immoral nor fattening. Uh, you get three butsers, right? You, you can <laughs> respond three times in question of the order, uh, and then after that. It's your job to salute smartly and get down to work. Uh, your your job is to do your job and fulfill the orders of those um, placed over you. And uh, Moses is just kind of pushing back kind of hard. And I think, you know, Yahweh, the Lord says, no, we got a job to do and you're the guy. Go do it. I mentioned earlier that he was 80 years old. I think uh, his age might have a little bit to do with it too. Although we should remember that he died at 120, so he's just a little, little bit over the hill. Uh, yeah. He still has. He's a go go. He's not necessarily a slow go or a no go yet. So he, 80 is he, the new 50. Yeah, exactly. He's about 50 years old in modern in modern parlance. But I think I just like what you said. I'm just pondering on it. I'm pondering on a couple of things. One, you said he has a pretty good life there. And he does. He's fled Egypt. He's a fugitive, technically still. He really doesn't want to go back because going back is going back into a place where people like him are enslaved. And even though he has some connections with the Pharaoh and his daughters and all that kind of stuff, those people are moved on or who knows where they're at. I mean, it's been a long time. And the other thing that you said, which is really a sidebar, as you said, you get uh, three butsers. I, I like that. Um, I, I should do that with my son, who is a teenager now, and he likes to do a lot of butts. I usually only give him one, and so and then then I then the anger is uh, stoked against him. I think from now on, I'll be gracious and give him three. But in any case, you're I'm right. Sure he'll it, appreciate that. <laughs> oh, he usually takes ten, regardless. But the uh, the Lord here. He is gracious even in that he's put up with this for so long. I mean, really, in, in, in our hearts, in our perfect devotion, the Lord should just say it, and we should just do it, as I expect from my son. That never happens. So the Lord here is already have been, has already been gracious, so when his anger begins to be a little kindled against him, um, it, it still is notable that he doesn't punish him. He provides for him. He gives him Aaron, his brother, who's going to speak for him. Well, I'd like to get into a little bit more of this um, right after the break, and we'll get into Moses returning to Egypt. And does God try to kill Moses? We'll check that out, too. 
Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Jason Bredesen, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Sacramento, California. Remember, folks, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can contact me directly at pastorboo at gmail.com. I respond to every email I receive. I have a few in the inbox still waiting for a response, so if you've written me, uh, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't worry. The response is coming. Now, Pastor, before the break, we were talking about Moses and his excuses, and uh, it's about time for him to return to Egypt. But just uh, anything else, though, before we move on, because we still have uh, Aaron coming, and Aaron, who's his older brother by about three years, I guess, uh, he is also a Levite, of course, because they're brothers, but he's coming, and he's going to be essentially the prophet of Moses, as Moses is the prophet of God. Maybe the, maybe the first uh, instance of a vicar in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it could very well be. Uh, it's, it really is beautiful that, you know, even in the midst of the sending of Moses to go and fulfill this great task on the, in the Lord's strength and, and with the Lord's authority, yet he's not sending Moses alone. He's given him Aaron, who has remained in Egypt and presumably has a very good standing with all of the people of Israel. He's also very eloquent. And, and as you reflect, he is going to be the mouthpiece of Moses, who is the mouthpiece of God. Then he's also sending him the staff. Take the staff with you, with which uh, you shall do the signs that I gave you. So, you know, the Lord really is equipping Moses to do this great task at great length. He's taken away all of the excuses, and he's said, you have a job to do, and and yet I'm sending you out there not alone, but with Aaron, with the elders of Israel, and with this great staff of authority by which you'll show everybody uh, exactly who I am and the authority with which you're working. That sending out of the, with the staff is uh, fascinating to me because— we have here an ordinary staff, right? There's nothing magical or special or even sacred about this staff. Uh, probably the not too long before Moses was using it to, you know, knock around some sheep and get them in line or, you know, try to get down into an embankment to pull a sheep out of the ditch. And now this ordinary object is be con has been consecrated by God to be an emblematic of his power. 
So the power does not lie in Moses. It does not lie in the staff, uh, but it lies within God. But because we're such creatures who need these tangible things, he gives him that staff. And the staff then represents God being with him. And, and not in a symbolic way, in a more than symbolic way. Um, very uh, sacramental in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, a, the question of whether or not this was a discussion of a theology of means, right? We love the means of grace, the sacraments, and the word coming to us in many and various ways. And I think this staff uh, very much can be viewed in that manner. Looking ahead to verse 20, it says, Moses took the staff of God in his hands. And I really like that language. It, it, you're right. It's, it's just a stick, just a walking stick, just a, a shepherd's staff. But it is so much more in the hand of God who is empowering the hand and voice of Moses. Well, let's get some of those verses then. This is going to be verses 18 through 23. Um, because after that is sort of a very strange, strange event. We'll get to that in a minute. But verses 18 through 23. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Wow, right? God is not messing around. But we have a couple of things here that I think cause some trouble for folks. Um, One is uh, we have Moses asking Jethro, his father-in-law, to go back to his brothers in Egypt and in the I don't know that it is a pretense, but some people see this as a pretense to see whether they are still alive. He doesn't really share with him the entirety of what's going on. And then second, of course, is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. You know, a constant discussion that we have when we discuss these verses because it presents such a logical contradiction in our mind. But starting at the top, though, you know, so Moses goes back to his Jethro, his father-in-law. Uh, why is he going back to Jethro? Why does he, why does he even ask? Why does he just leave? You think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really comes down to uh, the the respect that he has for his father in law and the desire to do things right. I think had Jethro said, "Yeah, I know, I need you here to tend the sheep," I, I, God willing, Moses would have said, "Well, I appreciate your concern there and respect it, but I must go." And uh, um, and, and yet Jethro sends him with his peace. Go ahead, uh, go in peace. And uh, so he goes. Yeah, he. I, I think you're right. He, he would have, so he is Ruel, of course, um, the priest of Midian. And uh, even though they're called Jethro here, a little bit of confusion. 
but he has this responsibility as the patriarch of this family. And so Moses rightfully goes and he shows us certainly an example of the order that God has designed families and the order that God has put forth. And so Moses gives us certainly a good example here. And then he takes his wife and his sons and he has them ride on a donkey back to the land of Egypt. Now, it could have been assumed, I suppose, what type of animal they rode on. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's a bridge too far. But whenever I see people putting wives and children on the backs of donkeys and heading places, you know, you can't help but make those connections. Well, as we head into Advent in a few weeks, we know of one family that sat on the donkey and uh, the the wife and unborn child on the donkey to uh, to go and be counted in the census. And uh, we are grateful for the result of that, are we not? Yeah, absolutely. And we have then here uh, Moses telling, uh, or sorry, Moses being told by God that you are to do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. But he's going to harden his heart. So as I said before, you know, Moses is doing a task that he knows will ultimately succeed, but will not succeed until the time is right. So he's showing his faithfulness by, as we know, because he'll fulfill these things, he's showing his faithfulness by doing what God commands, even though God has already told him it won't work. That's, mm -hmm. that's striking to me. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, I mean, you look at the all of the confusion that comes out of the theological confusion that comes out of the idea of um, Pharaoh having his heart hardened by Yahweh. There's also the conversation that is had that Yahweh or Pharaoh is hardening his own heart, and that interplay and interchange that has played out very significantly in our own Christian theology as. Uh, or, or, you know, Protestant Christian theology, I should say, not our own, but uh, as John Calvin and Jacob Arminius have uh, wrestled with the free will predestination question, and, and what does that look like with regard to um, sin and our culpability for sin and where we stand before God in the midst of um, the, the teaching of Scripture. And yet, I think it's easy for people to look and see God did not make Pharaoh do anything that wasn't already Pharaoh's natural fallen tendency. Yes, yes. You know, Pharaoh, the, the, when, when it says that God uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, I think, and, and don't let me take it too far, but just the fact that being um, having God revealed to you and then, and then knowing that God desires something from you, it's the natural reaction for us to harden our hearts against him. That's the fallen nature, right? The natural person cannot accept the things of God. And so Pharaoh gets his heart hardened because of God's law, but it's, it's him hardening his own heart while at the same time God's the one doing the hardening because God is the cause of it. And it, mm -hmm. it's really the same thing, and it speaks of it both ways because – Yes. In deference to Calvin, I would say that we're trying to maintain that uh, God is sovereign, while mm -hmm. at the same time trying to maintain, uh, maybe contra Calvin, that people <laughs> uh, 
also have a responsibility for their own sins. Yes. Yep. Romans 9, the Apostle Paul speaks of God's holy will in the midst of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and what that looks like. And he does exactly what you just said in terms of uh, the teaching that he provides that, yeah, God hardened Pharaoh's heart through the use of the law. But Pharaoh was resistant to the proclamation that he was given uh, that he would receive mercy if he would just uh, be faithful in how he proceeded. And Pharaoh did not and would not and could not. And so ultimately, Pharaoh was responsible for his sin and we are responsible for our sin. And um, I look to Luke 13 as very instructive for us. Luke 13 verses 1 and following. This is where the Galileans' blood was mingled by Pilate with the sacrifices, which was a, a grievous um, affront to the people. And uh, Jesus kind of ups the ante and says, well, what about the Tower of Siloam, upon which 18 were killed when it fell upon them? And, uh, you know, he he Jesus there really doesn't mess around. He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. So he's really saying what Jesus is saying there, what Paul is saying there is um, essentially, you know, the sovereignty of God is what it is. There's no getting around it, but it's wise not to peek behind that curtain for us who are finite and limited in our understanding. So rather than peeking behind the curtain at the sovereignty of God, rather it's imperative for us it's it's very wise for us to recognize our own standing before Yahweh repent of our sin and receive the mercy of God in Jesus Christ uh, you know that that is a foundational difference between Lutherans and Calvinists in terms of how we view God a Calvinist will look at the sovereignty of God and say that is that is the standard by which it's set uh, that we view God. And it's not that we deny sovereignty. We certainly do value it and appreciate it. But rather than looking to God in his sovereignty, we look to God in his mercy, which abounds to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that it call, is that very thing that softens the heart. We call that the you know absconding God, right? The God who hides from us. There is an element of God's nature that is not really ours to look at. We yeah. even can look in our text today if we rewound just a little bit. You know, when Moses complains of his speech impediment, whatever that is, whether he just wasn't good with words or whether he had some sort of impediment, probably the first thing. But God says, "Am I not the one who makes men's mouths, makes them mute and deaf and blind?" And you might look at that and go, yeah, I guess that's true. But we're also told that you know these types of departures from the way that God has designed us are a result of our sin or sinfulness in the world, uh, original sin, not that we've sinned. But at the same time, God is also in control. And it's this paradox that Lutherans are content to live with that some others seek to try to explain away. Now, here's something— uh, if we can move on, that it's very difficult to explain, 
<laughs> it is a very odd uh, intermission uh, to the situation. So we have Moses. He's heading back. He's ready. He's going. The, the family's all loaded up on the donkeys, and they decided to stop on the way. Verse 24 through 26. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, Pastor, were you hoping we ran out of time before we got to this, or did you look into it for me? Because I, yeah, I did you some, know, I, I did some research, was, and it's tough. <laughs> I was told by your producers you were going to handle this on Monday, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk about awkward, huh? And Moses is sent by Yahweh to do his task, and they're on their way. He's ready to go. He's got his family with him, and then Yahweh shows up, and he's like, eh, sorry, buddy. Time to go, right? <laughs> That's awkward. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know what? Let's also be honest. Uh, God, in the history of the way God works, and and it's not that the um, unusual. It's unusual to God because God knows all mm -hmm. things. He knows exactly what He's doing. It's only unusual to us who don't always have all the information. But we can yeah. think of Abraham and Isaac, right? Mm -hmm. Abraham through this Isaac. You know, all nations are going to be blessed. The Messiah is going to come. It's going to be great. Oh, by the way, would you go up and kill him for me? <laughs> you're just yeah. like, wait, whoa, what? Well, it's sort of the same way. It's like, Moses, I'm going to send you. We're going to free the people. I know you're worried about going, but I'm going to be with you. And oh, by the way, oh, he jumps out of the bushes and tries to kill him. So <laughs> I think what we can do besides just say, wow, you know, our inability to understand the majesty of God's ways I think we can look at a couple of things. One, Genesis 17, right? It says God yep. makes his covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And yes. clearly there's something to do with circumcision here because yeah. um, you think Moses is surprised by him. I think it's his life. So I should say there are some debates on whether it's mm -hmm. Moses' son or whether it's Moses himself who was the one that the Lord had met to put him to death. But a lot of people that, think it's Moses. I don't know if you have an opinion. Well, you're you're right to reflect that that's part of the mystery of this passage. Uh, but yeah, everything that I read seemed to point to Moses with with the caveat that it could be his son. And one example has been that like perhaps Moses well, you know, wasn't being jumped by God in the bushes a la uh, Jacob. Perhaps he was uh, just deathly ill on the way. And Zipporah recognizes that this is the Lord exercising judgment against him, and she recognizes that perhaps on her account, he had not had one of their sons circumcised as was required, and so she jumps into action, takes a flint, and cuts off her son's foreskin. So as surprised as Mos Moses might be, I think, I think his name is Gershom, he's even more surprised. Um, <laughs> imagine mom jumping in there with a knife. And right. <laughs> so then he touched Moses's feet with it and, and not to make the conversation any more uncomfortable. But the term for feet there is also a euphemism during this time mm -hmm. for genitals. So mm -hmm. it's just a strange text. And while we don't yes. know all the details, would you agree, Pastor, that what we can take away from it is that we should follow 
God's will and commands to the best of our ability. Yes. Uh, the, the significance of circumcision here is really the takeaway and how it sets up the, the act of circumcision, the, the right of circumcision sets apart the people of Israel over and against the, the nations, the Goyim, and really reflects them as Yahweh's people. And as Moses takes his family, one of whom has not been circumcised, to return to Egypt to save God's people of Israel, uh, he does not mess around with the covenant that was given through Abraham. And yes, um, for for us who are in the Christian church and in the Christian faith, it would be unwise for us to delay baptism, right? Um, circumcision is the gift of God uh, to the Old Testament Israelites to set them apart as his people, as his baptism for us in Christ. And um, for us to delay or deny baptism, even to the youngest among us, is uh, is to speak against God's holy word. Well, let's finish up our text today. This is going to be verses 27 through 31. It finishes up the chapter, uh, and it does depart from this story because now they're uh, heading out. Here we go. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs and the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Uh, incidentally, the first mention of Aaron in the scriptures, right? We didn't really know that he even had a brother until this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, this chapter is. Obviously, he was mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, and and the significance that Aaron plays throughout the, the Exodus now is... It, 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 the guy really plays a huge role, right? He is Moses's mouthpiece uh, to the people. Uh, it is the the staff uh, is alluded to be in his hand as these yeah. miracles take place. Yeah, no, that part I thought was um, eh, confusing, I suppose, because we know that Aaron, because he stayed in uh, Egypt, probably has a good relationship with the elders, and that. Uh, and the people of Israel. So it really makes this great connection. Moses comes in um, because Aaron is the one speaking. You know, he's vouchsafing for Moses. Um, I was thrown off when it said that um, uh, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the mm -hmm. people. Seems like uh, Moses right. is the one supposed to be doing the signs. Well, um, is that not a reflection of the pastoral office? Sure. Uh, in a roundabout way, I mean, it, it's it's you and I who are doing the work, but it is the holy word of God and God Himself who is the one who is speaking. When I offer absolution to my people here at Trinity, it's simply my mouth that's doing or, or is saying the words, but it is the voice of God, the the work of God that is forgiving the sin. 
Well, we're thankful that God had the foresight to see that Moses would need this help, and Moses and Aaron head back to the people, and they and they and their reaction is the reaction that we're looking for. They they believed mm-hmm. when they heard yep. that Yahweh had visited them. They worshipped. They bowed their heads. The same message, the same signs are going to Pharaoh. So when we talk about you know who hardened whom's heart, here's yeah. the deal. The same words and the same signs that went to Israel and they believed are going to Pharaoh, and he's going to not believe. And that's something we struggle with as pastors, as everyday Christians. You know, everybody has the same Bible. Everybody has access to to it the same way we do. We proclaim the word to everybody the same, or we try to. And then, well, some believe and some don't, and we have to live with that. Mm -hmm. Trust the word to do the work. Uh, recognizing that it is simply our task to proclaim the word and let the let the lord be responsible if you will for the outcome. Well, we've come to the end of our time together, brother. Anything else you want to say before we conclude? You already hit on it, but I love the beauty of the how this passage ends. Uh the people believed when they heard that the lord was visiting them, that he was coming to them in salvation. He had seen their affliction, and their response is one of worship. Such a beautiful reflection of the Word of God at work to bring about repentance and faith in people. May we follow their example. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Jason Bredesen, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Sacramento, California. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show again. I uh, hope to have you on very soon. Thank you, Pastor Boo. I I really enjoy being with you and the the saints of God uh, listening in on KFUO. And folks, thank you too for joining us today. Uh, Be with us again on Monday because we're going to move into chapter five. Pharaoh now, as we just discussed, is not only unimpressed with Moses's plea, he sends him the same words and the same signs, and yet his response is that he's going to punish them by making their labor even more difficult. Moses, please, let us go and worship our God, but Pharaoh, the God King, is having nothing of it. So join us Monday, and have a blessed weekend. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.